Was the gospel of Jesus Christ the only gospel? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kimnitty and Glenn Powell. One of the things that you've heard us talk about on this podcast is the journey towards stellar Bible engagement. There's a number of steps on this journey, and I'll just quickly go over them uh, just to reiterate. First, we read with a community of Jesus followers. We read whole books in a reader's Bible that shows the natural literary formats. We know what kind of literature we're reading and the rules that go along with interpreting it. So poetry, prophecy, proverbs, apocalypse, etc. You kind of understand the ground rules for reading that sort of literature. We read each part of the Bible in its historical and cultural context. We connect all the books into a big and coherent redemptive story. We read everything through the Jesus lens because he's the clearest revelation of who God is. And then finally, with the Spirit's help, we take up our own roles in the story by improvising its trajectory of restoration. So it's quite the list, and there's a lot to unpack in each of those points there. Um, But we try to have every episode of The Bible Reset touch on at least one of those steps. So today we're going to go ahead and zero in on one particular part of the cultural context point, and specifically this cultural context of the New Testament in kind of the shadow of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's good, Alex. And uh, if you've tuned in to other podcasts, you know that we've touched before on this um, issue uh, of historical and cultural context. And this won't be the last podcast where we talk about it because this is really a, a many splendored thing. And the reality is, is that the modern church has been so engulfed in a versified Bible that our contextual muscles, I think, have been atrophied. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll return to this subject on a number of of occasions. And I think in the past, guys, we've done some episodes where we talked about the world that Jesus was born into, and we focused primarily on the first century Jewish religious context. And as we know that there were different uh, schisms or different sects within Judaism, and so it was a complex thing. But the reality is, is that Jesus was born into a Jewish context, but he was also born into a much wider world than Judaism. And so in the first century, you had people whose lives had been shaped by Greek philosophy, um, which had become widely known. Um, There, of course, were the regular pagan religions that were widespread. But that brings us to a a third major element in the world into which Christianity was born that we absolutely can't leave out and oftentimes is left out, and that is the backdrop of the Roman Empire. And so today we're going to talk about this powerful, this worldwide influence of the Roman Empire, and we're going to especially key in on language that was used to describe the empire, which frankly sounds very much like uh, language that first century Christians used. And we'll discover that uh, the followers of Jesus weren't the only ones who claimed to have a gospel that the whole world needed. And uh, the Romans had their own gospel and uh, the euangelion. And 
they referenced it as such, the same words that uh, the Christian gospel referenced. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. I think in the, the parallel language will be one of the key features of that. Before we jump into the details on that, using Rome's own words, um, I thought it would be helpful to frame all this in a particular way. What we're going to talk about here is really the worldview that pervaded the Roman Empire. And the best way to get at the core elements of a worldview, I think, is to ask the big questions. So following the work of Brian Walsh and J. Richard Middleton in their really outstanding book, The Transforming Vision, we're going to work with the five basic worldview questions. Number one, who are we? That is, what kind of creatures are we really at our core, at our essence? Number two, where are we? What is the nature of the place where we live? Number three, what's wrong? Almost everybody around the world acknowledges there's some kind of core problem with the world, but different worldviews will answer differently what exactly that problem is. Number four, what's the solution? What is the path toward making things better? And then number five, what time is it anyway? Which is a way of saying, how far along the path of that solution are we? Are we close to getting things figured out? Is there still a long way to go? It's really the question of eschatology. Where are we in relationship to the desired goal or end of all things, the, the way of making things better? So those five questions, I think, are, are really getting to the heart of what anybody's or any culture's worldview is. And um, every culture has answers to them in one way or another. Worldviews are productive. They lead to other things like stories, symbols, praxis, which is simply a way of living in the world. All of these things bring coherence to the lives of those who hold these answers to those worldview questions. So, as we begin to unpack what the gospel according to Rome is, I think we want to keep these questions in mind. So, even at the end, I think it would be helpful if we were to go back to these questions and say, okay, now that we've seen what Rome talks about as it, it positions itself as the answer to the world's problems, um, what will be Rome's answer to all these questions? Yeah, that's good, Glenn. So, you know, evangelization is not just a Christian proposition. The, uh, the Roman Empire was constantly evangelizing um, its its uh, citizens, and uh, some would say they were perhaps being brainwashed. But they there was a gospel according to Rome, and so when you know the apostle Paul made his way to Rome and set up camp there and had access to some of the 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 minds and the thinkers of that day, all roads led to Rome. Other Christians coming to Rome, and now this new gospel, this Christian gospel. Uh, appears on the scene, and it becomes very clear that it's running straight into and oftentimes counter to the Roman gospel. It's also uh, helpful to know that in the ancient world, there was no separation between politics and religion. They were completely intertwined, and they were reinforcing you know, each other. So let's begin to kind of unpack this gospel um, according to Rome, and we'll begin with kind of a brief hit tutorial on the the genesis of this gospel. So you have the Roman story um, in the decades, really right before Jesus, Rome had 
uh, pivoted from being a republic that was ruled by senators to an empire ruled by Caesar. The transition, of course, started with Caesar, but it really was fully realized under the rule of his adopted son, Octavian, who became known as Caesar Augustus. And so with that consolidation of power, with the fact that Rome was now the uncontested empire in the West, Rome started to craft a new narrative. And here's what it was. The idea was that Rome's rise to a world power was inevitable because the gods had ordained it and the whole world needed it. So the Dark Ages, you know, had rendered the world barbaric and uh, constant warfare mired in intellectual darkness. And so according to the Roman gospel, the gods ordained that Rome and the Caesars um, were the answer to, to fixing the world. And of course, we know all of this because there are records, right? There are historical records and archaeological records and, and evidence of exactly how the Romans thought of themselves. And, uh, and so we're going to read a couple of those today just to uh, give our listeners the words straight from the Romans' mouths about how they thought of themselves. So first off, we have Aristides, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was a historian, and he wrote this about the rise of the empire. Before the rule of the Romans, the dregs came to the surface, and everything happened through blind chance. But since your appearance, confusion and revolt have come to an end. Order has returned everywhere and in everyday life, and, the, and in the state there is clear light of day. Cities now gleam in splendor and beauty, and the whole earth is arrayed like a paradise. So, they don't mince words about uh, how things were before wow. Rome. Yeah. Yeah, and and kind of the mm -hmm. um, the peace that was brought onto uh, onto the chaos by the Roman Empire, um, and and they didn't see, say these things just about Rome in general. Uh, there was also kind of a, a focused devotion on Caesar himself. So this is from a decree about Caesar Augustus that was written just a couple of years actually before Jesus was born. The birthday of the most divine emperor is the fount of every public and private good. Justly, one would take this day to be the beginning of the whole universe. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aspect. Justly would one take this day to be the beginning of life and living for everyone. Okay. So we got two examples there. I think there's several things to notice before we go on and read some more. First, I mean, just look at how far reaching these claims are, right? Rome brings peace to all lands and all people. It even affects the land itself. Apparently, chaos and disorder ruled the earth before Rome came to the rescue. So Rome brings the transformation that the whole world was looking for. Um. It reminds me of that scene from The Gladiator. I don't know if you remember when Maximus is talking to Marcus Aurelius before he's killed by his son. And um, Marcus Aurelius has become a little bit cynical about Rome and its power. But Maximus is a true believer. And when Marcus Aurelius asks him, why do you fight for Rome? Right. I don't know if you remember. Maximus says, look, I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is darkness and chaos. 
And he says very clearly, Rome is the light. And that's why I'm fighting for the, the light of Rome to be shed around the world. That's why I'm fighting barbarians up in Germania. And it's, it's the, the core idea, really, behind the Roman Empire is they were the answer. They're the light that the world needs. Therefore, it's proper. It's good and proper and supported by the gods that they would take over the world. So that's, it's like universal. The second big idea I think there is um, the claim about Caesar himself. Quote, he is the most divine emperor. So the Romans began talking about the Caesars not merely as being appointed by the gods, but they actually came to refer to them as gods themselves. So this all comes into its own with the great epic poetry of Virgil. He was a contemporary and a friend, actually, of um, Augustus. And he crafted those songs, the poetry that Rome sang about itself. One group of poems called the Eclogues, he says, he will, talking about Caesar, he will live as God and observe the heroes of ancient times, walking among the gods. They will behold him in amazement. Peace he will bring to the world, governing it with the Father's power. The goats themselves will come home with udders full. No longer will the herds of grazing cattle fear the lion. Even from his cradle sprouts a wreath of flattering flowers. The serpents will disappear. Harmful, poisonous plants will vanish. The fields of Assyria will yield balsam in abundance. Uh, you guys, this is remarkable, right? This sounds like you're reading the messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah, right? Yeah, the ones we read before Christmas, Isaiah 9 yep. and 11. I mean, these, like, the peaceable kingdom is coming. It's a world, worldwide empire. It's the renewal of creation. And again, this exaltation of Caesar, he is a divine child and he will live as a god. In fact, the other gods behold him in amazement. This is just over-the-top language. He is the one who brings peace to the world. I mean, catch this. Governing with the Father's power? Like, yeah. who are we talking about here? This is, this is just striking language. Yeah, I mean, it's a gospel of national hubris, mm. for sure. And, um, and yet, they believed it, and it did capture the imaginations of the people of Jesus' day. And it competed with the new, the new gospel that Jesus brought. Hey, just a couple uh, more quotes uh, from these Roman sacred texts, because they are stunning. And uh, the first one is from a Roman inscription that was found near Ephesus, I think written in 4 BCE. So right around the time that Jesus was uh, born, it said, Caesar is the God made manifest, the universal savior of human life. Land and sea have peace. The cities flourish in harmony and with an abundance of food. There is an abundance of all good things. People are filled with happy hopes for the future and with delight in the present. So this uh, Gospel of Rome is Good news for individuals, and it's good news for the planet, and it's good news for the world. And then just one more inscription found in uh, Asia Minor in 9 BCE. The providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life 
by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who came after us, to make wars to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the gospel that has come to men through him. So there you have it, Mm. Um, the gospel according to Rome. And Augustus is positioned as the universal savior of human life. His birthday was the beginning of the gospel that was to come to everybody through him. And just to be clear, these are the same words found in the Greek New Testament, savior and gospel. In fact, uh, the Gospel of Mark would later begin with those exact words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. All right. So there's these proclamations, but like really how many people would see it? Um, I think it's worth making a mention here briefly about how this message was spread across the Roman Empire. You can't see it, obviously, but I'm holding in my hand right now a denarius from early in the first century. It has a portrait of Tiberius Caesar on it. He was the successor to Augustus. He was Caesar, in fact, during the time of the ministry of Jesus. You might remember the story of Jesus holding one of these denarius coins uh, and having a discussion about paying taxes to Caesar. So coins in the ancient world were a means of sending messages. They were really the media, if you will, of the ancient world. So this one says on it, T. Caesar Divi Og, which was all abbreviations for this phrase, basically. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then when you flip this coin over, on the backside it says, Pontiff Maxim, senior priest. So this is Rome's gospel sent around the world. Everybody who's buying and selling sees this message about Caesar being divine, being the son of God being the senior priest, and again, this intertwining of politics and religion. Um, In the ancient world, these things were not in nice, tidy, modern kind of constructs that we have where everything is separated. They, They wrapped it all together, and the coins in the ancient world declared the gospel according to Rome. Yeah, Glenn, thanks for that. And just for our listeners, uh, I'll I'll make sure to put all these quotes that we've been reading uh, in the show notes just so you can read them for yourselves. And there's actually a couple that we didn't end up using that I'll, I'll put in there as well, just, just so you can see the language for yourselves. And it's fascinating to me, the similarity of the language, like you were saying, Paul, between sort of the Bible that we're all familiar with and the the gospel of Rome that preceded it, or I guess the, the New Testament that we're all familiar with and, and the gospel of Rome before it. So, uh, so we're trying to look at how this all interacts with the gospel of Jesus. And so we need to return to that a little bit. And we need to remember that the word gospel isn't just a something with personal implications, kind of personal, private, spiritual implications. It's an announcement of good news that matters in how the real world operates. And I think that's how the Romans were using it. And that's how the first Christians used it. So going back to the five worldview questions that you went over earlier, Glenn, uh, we need to remember that everyone, whether they whether they kind of consciously do it or not, crafts some sort of answer to those five big questions. 
So let's look at how people within the Roman Empire might have answered those questions. Who are we? We are citizens or slaves of Rome. Where are we? We are within the boundaries of the world's greatest empire. What's wrong? Well, without Rome, the world is chaos and darkness. So what's the solution? Well, of course, Rome is order and light, so Rome's control needs to just continue to extend to the ends of the earth. And what time is it? We're well on the way to conquering everybody, all peoples and all lands. And when that happens, our civilization, which brings with it peace and security and order and light, will be complete. Yeah, that's good, Alex. And so, you know, Rome's gospel announces the divine choice of Caesar by the gods as the true and rightful ruler of the earth. And this gospel, as we've mentioned again, is embedded in the story of the whole world, with Rome claiming that all of human history has been anticipating and building toward the revelation of Caesar Augustus. So when we talk now today about the Christian gospel, we have to remember that this is the world that Jesus was born into, and we need to read the Bible through that lens. And of course, the early Christians, they knew this Roman gospel, and people were forced to live into this gospel, and they knew that their announcement about a different king, a, a Jewish Messiah, directly confronted uh, the Roman one. So the point here is that the world has always had competing versions of the gospel and differing announcements about what the good news uh, for the whole world really is, and that's, that's true today as well. Yes, I I think sometimes we're tempted, you know, I think I grew up thinking of the word gospel as kind of a separate private word. It belonged to us, to Christians, right? Not to anybody else. I thought of it as a religious word, dealing only with my private spiritual concerns. It just existed in a realm that was safe and protected, I think, from whatever was happening in the wider world. But now, reading the word gospel in the New Testament in the context of the first century, in light of Rome's use of that exact language, we realize that Christianity burst into the world claiming the same territory as Caesar, claiming the same language of Savior, Son of God, bringer of the kingdom of peace and hope. All those things that Rome claimed first, by the way, Jesus came and his apostles came claiming that he was the actual true version of all those things. So one of the takeaways, I think, for us today has to be, does our world offer any competing gospels? What alternative stories of salvation, of hope for the world, do we see in our own culture? What stories, what gospels are capturing people's hearts today and realizing that our Christian announcement of the gospel is not the only one claiming the right use of those words. And I think it's worth doing what the first Christians had to do, and that is look around and say, okay, who, who is competing with these claims to be the answer for everything the world is longing for? 
Yeah, and I think it might just be worth taking just a minute here and and diving into that for for just a second and maybe naming a few of those. We don't have to get too hyper specific, mm-hmm. but you look at our politics and you look at uh, you know for some reason Elon Musk, kind of a, a polarizing figure, I would mm-hmm. say, comes to mind. Like mm-hmm. Glenn, I think you read a book about him a few years back and. Basically, yeah. I think the takeaway was he believes that planet Earth is kind of a lost cause. And so all of his endeavors are about being able to colonize and start over somewhere else. So, like, what does a guy like that say to those five worldview questions? Like, what does he think yeah, about that's, where we are? That's what's wrong? What's the solution? That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Right. I think, I mean, the specific one, where are we? We're on planet Earth. It's the wrong place. Like we've ruined it. So we have to go to some other place. I mean, he's got a very specific answer to that question. That's just fascinating. The other thing I've noticed, and you mentioned politics, um, Alex, and I think this is across the board, kind of like both Republicans and Democrats, candidates running for office for president specifically have used language really that is ultimate language, just like this gospel language. When I hear Mm -hmm. a president say, democracy is the last best hope for the world right yeah when when one presidential speechwriter took the words from a christian hymn that there's power wonder working power in the blood of the lamb and turned that into there's power wonder working power in the spirit of democracy right that's that's using gospel language but transferring it to an earthly political kingdom that the world has on offer. And I think we need to realize, look, is this is like across the board, politicians of every stripe are tempted to ultimatize, you know, make an ultimate good, their program, mm-hmm. their party, their democracy, whatever, um, as the answer that the world needs at its deepest point of need. And that's the mm-hmm. danger in our world, just like it was in the first century, I think. Yeah, I mean, we could keep going really mm-hmm. with these uh, with these big questions. What does the next generation think? How would they answer? You mm-hmm. know those those five questions. Yep. And I do think, I mean, there are some perennial, you know, gospel stories. Certainly, hedonism mm-hmm. uh, has been around for a long time. Um, humanism, especially you know, beginning maybe with the enlightenment, but Mm -hmm. continues, you know, through today. I think if, you know, we're being prophetic on this podcast, we might call, you know, the gospel of nationalism out as being perhaps a new competing uh, gospel today that is being embraced by Christians. And, you know, we don't want to be overly simplistic and we don't have time to get into the difference between patriotism and nationalism, but if your gospel could be defined as, um, you know, Jesus is great for personal salvation and great for getting people into heaven, so let's keep him in that box. But this other box, which is when it comes to a flourishing world, well, that's a whole different story. Mm. And that means we are responsible for getting the right countries in the driver's seat, the right politicians in power, the right judges. Um, in the courts. And again, there's there's some validity to all of those things, except when they become your gospel. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't know the right adjective, misguided, half-baked. But the problem with that, that gospel 
is that it doesn't sound like good news. It certainly doesn't sound like good news for the whole world. And is it majestic yeah. enough to capture the hearts and and the imaginations of people today? And the reality is, is gospels are only as good, right, as they produce. So, mm. I mean, Rome ultimately folds because it becomes clear that their gospel doesn't have the power backing it up. It doesn't bring a flourishing world. It doesn't bring flourishing individuals. And I think it's a challenge for us today. Does our gospel really produce? And the gospel that Paul talked about in Peter and John was indeed a gospel that was all encompassing for individuals and for the world and a gospel that worked. And that's our challenge today is, I think, is the church. Yeah, it's great, Paul. I think, you know, is your gospel big enough to be what gospels are supposed to be in answering these fundamental human questions? And uh, we face that challenge just as much as the earliest Christians did. And it, like you say, it's perennial, right? This is a constant question. And it's, it's just no good putting the, the Christian gospel in a little box, making it a safe, private, totally individualistic thing when the questions that it's really meant to answer are as big as the wide world. And that's, that's yeah. I think, what reading the Bible, reading the New Testament in this case in context, helps us relearn, just because we were reading in context, helps us learn how big the word gospel really is. Yeah, that's our hope with this episode is, like you said, Glenn, to kind of take take the gospel out of the the small personalized box that we often put it in and make it into something that has implications for how the world actually is and how it actually works and what its kind of future destiny is. So mm, we hope this episode yep. has been helpful for our listeners to to see that angle on it and get get another layer of richness and context behind some of these things that we tend to maybe take for granted or gloss over because we've heard the word so often and we kind of just assign a, a standardized meaning to it. So hopefully that's been helpful for our listeners. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.